There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you only look, then you will see On WCN-TV Hi, friends. Pastor Mike here with you again today on WCN-TV. Thank you for joining me. The gap between churches and church leadership has been growing. Trust has been eroding. A recent Barna research study says we must face the reality that we have contributed to the crisis of credibility. There are cultural headwinds that have changed the social standing or cultural power, if we could put it that way of pastors, but we have made a mess of things as well. From small country churches to uber mega churches, many pastors have been found to be bullies, hypocrites, alcohol abusers, and even womanizers. The crisis of credibility is a symptom. The misuse of authority is the root cause. My guest today, author Trevor Whitman says the church in the United States is broken, and I would give a hearty yet sad amen to that. In his book, which is the topic of our conversation today, Brick by Brick, Reconstructing the Deconstructed, he says that most churches don't provide or don't focus their efforts where they should be. They're still providing necessary help and healing, but the focus in many cases is on the wrong place. Seeing news story after news story of rampant abuse, church splits, division, ravaging congregations, political ideologies taking over the pulpit, an inconsistent application of biblical truth and principles have a lot of people questioning things in the church today. The way we are doing church in the 21st century is being exposed as faulty. The topics that he touches on in this book, by the way, thank you, Jonathan, for putting it up on the screen, brick by brick, brick reconstructing the, the deconstruction reconstructing the deconstructed that touches on every topic. And as I went through the book, I was, was very pleased with what I saw. Um, it's not just a, uh, what I call a cotton candy approach to church problems and solutions, but it really digs down deep. One of the statements, and we'll touch on this in, in my conversation with Trevor, one of the things that we have simply got to accept and accept it ASAP and then move on from there to a correct understanding is this. The American dream is not the gospel. And let me say that again. The American dream is not the gospel. We often confuse our economic prosperity with God's blessings. Now, people aren't so quick to associate difficulties with God's judgment. And I would say that the two things go hand in hand. Trevor Whitman graduated from Multnomah University, has spent much of his life teaching, instructing, leading, writing on theology, doctrine, and 
Church Health. He has been a teacher, a children's pastor, and now works as director of operations at Bulwark Capital. Uh, we were talking before he we went on the air, and clearly he's an avid baseball fan and, and <laughs> follows the Mariners and has his whole life. And of course, uh, some of you may know, or most of you probably don't know, but they're they're playing right now at a very, very important game. So, Trevor, thank you so much for breaking away from, from your love of baseball to join us today. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time. Yeah. Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation. And as I said, folks, uh, brick by brick, you, you can get it. Uh, Trevor's website is Trevor Whitman, TrevorWhitman.com. You can see it up there in the in the browser bar on the, the screen that uh, Jonathan has up there. Um, and I would I would uh, recommend you do this, especially if, if you're in an ecclesia, friends. If you're in an ecclesia that is struggling, having some issues, um, and you've tried to address them with, with the pastor, perhaps the elders before, um, but you're not getting anywhere, uh, I would suggest maybe get a copy of this, but read it yourself, and then pass it on to your pastor and, and maybe those elders there. And, and you never know, it might open their eyes to understand things. And perspective is very, very important. It's easy to get bogged down in our own perspective, and and really that can lead to blind spots and and missing a whole bunch of things. So, Trevor, you start out the the book talking about um, how we the the church I, I like to use the word ecclesia um, have developed a a worldview about how church is supposed to work and and operate, and I liken that to um, it's a Western Americanized Christian modernistic worldview that is, uh, is it too strong to say diametrically opposed to the biblical pattern of how the Ecclesia is supposed to act? I think that's a, a starting point. Um, I, I try to do a job in the introduction, Mike, talking about how when we're evaluating these things of the church, it's really important that we're coming off with the correct tone. Um, and it's not that all of what we're doing as a church is bad. There's a lot of great things that are happening. A lot of great pastors that are doing phenomenal work um, and often goes unappreciated. Right. So that's that we got to, we got to start there. There's a lot of good work that's happening. Um, The other piece is that um, there's no intention on my behalf to, to come across as someone that has all the answers because I don't Um, like you said, I was a children's pastor. I was a young adults pastor. Um, at a couple of different churches throughout my tenure um, in my career. And my experience in those um, different churches, you know, opened my eyes to different things. And, and like you bring up, you know, our worldview and, and how we view the church and how it's meant to be constructed and what it's supposed to look like. Obviously, that's going to look different based on the culture that we live in. And and so the, the last thing that I really want to impart is when we're having this discussion, um, it's really primarily about the church that's in America today. And it's not talking about, um, you know, Christianity in China or in North Korea or in the Middle East. Obviously, they have different issues than we do here in the American church. And so this book is not meant as a church hit job where all we do is tear everybody down and how awful everybody's doing. It's just breaking down the the certain things that over time, of course, uh, we get off course because we're sinful, we're broken human beings. And when sinful human beings are operating and running a church, of course, there's going to be things that break down. I, I love the uh, the concept of the 1%, right? Where if you're off by 1%, that doesn't seem like a huge deal initially. But if you stay off 1%, you continually go off on that path, you're going to find yourself quite a far, you know, quite far away from the initial place that you started and where you're supposed to be. And so I think what's happened is, you know, within the church in America in particular, we've just gotten off path in a couple of really important areas. And so in my introduction, I I try to do a job, you know, a good job of describing the core of orthodoxy that we all can agree upon and say, we are all in agreement that God created the world, that Jesus is who he says he is. He came down, he died on the cross for our sins, that as long as we confess with our mouths and have the fruit of a believer, we're going to experience eternity, right? Those core essential truths, we can agree on those things. 
And then once we have that in stone, then we can move on to these secondary doctrine issues where we can disagree and still love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that we've done a really, really bad job, especially in the last five to six years in the church with disagreement. We've kind of come to this place where we've convinced ourselves that if we disagree with a believer, you know, brother or sister, family member, even that uh, we just have to break off in community from them and, Mm -hmm. and then go into our own echo chamber where everyone agrees with my mindset and what I believe. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that's just not the way the body of Christ is meant to, you know, operate. And it's okay for us to disagree as long as we can, you know, come back to those core essentials that we love each other, that we're in community with one another and that we're really in this thing together. And if we can move forward with intellectual honesty, especially regarding some of the issues that we're going to talk about today that are really tough. You know, (laughs) these topics that I bring up, I bring up purposefully um, because a lot of people, a lot of churches, a lot of congregations aren't willing to have those hard conversations about these specific topics. And so I wanted to address them, look at them through a biblical lens and then see, you know, is there areas that we need to make adjustments on within our local congregations? And if so, how do we do that? And that's really the, the, you know, the premise of what I'm, where I'm coming from in brick by brick. Yes. Amen. That's a good, good analogy. Our worldview is important. I used to, used to talk about that. Um, Of course, that's, that's central to um, the apologetic task, um, understanding uh, different worldviews, and how they answer the significant questions. Um, and that gives you insight then into how to approach them with the gospel and speaking their language in, in a way that makes sense, uh, in other words. Um, and the fact of the matter is, friends, that the church in, in some areas, and I'm speaking broadly now, the church in America in some areas, um, they have simply adopted views that have come from the world and not the scriptures. And that is naturally going to cause a lot of of problems and issues. And how we deal with those things is a testimony to a watching world. Um, And it may very well be that there will come a, you'll come to a place where there's going to be um, um, God bless and God speed and and you'll move on. But in most of those instances, um, I think it's important that we let, love or charity lead the way and not become so so enmeshed in my way or the highway that's damaging to everybody so so i agree with that trevor chapter one uh deals with something that's very prevalent today in in american christianity and that is uh church leader i call it the cult of personality um you 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 title this chapter one, Celebrity Pastors and Our Desire for a King. So what, what do you mean by celebrity pastors? And, and it has something to do with putting them on a pedestal, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the, the concept being that, you know, the role of a pastor is meant to be a shepherd. You know, we talk about it in the New Testament. You look how God talks about the leadership that he puts in place in the Old Testament, the New Testament. He uses the language of a shepherd very intentionally. Mm-hmm. And and being a shepherd, being a pastor, um, If you, I have many friends that are pastors that are in the trenches, and it's not glamorous work, uh, especially in the last couple of years. It's been very difficult to be a pastor. You know, th- there's landmines everywhere for them to accidentally step on. You know, you talk about the COVID lockdowns. Everyone had an opinion about what should be happening or not happening. And man, I had a lot of friends that I would meet with that would just pour their hearts out and just talk about how difficult they felt like they could never make a good decision, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. you know, just looking at all the different variables. And so when I'm talking about celebrity pastors, it's really talking about people who have built a platform by being a pastor, by garnering influence and that being primarily through social media or books or, um, you know, being keynote speakers at conferences, whatever, all things that in a one-off basis, like that's not a big deal. But what we've seen is these pastors who have garnered these huge audiences. I mean, we're not even talking about thousands of people, right? There's some pastors that are out there that we would deem a celebrity pastor that have millions of followers, 
right? Mm -hmm. And I just look at it through the lens of if Jesus only had 12 disciples that he was intentionally pouring into, I don't know where, you know, what kind of pride or hubris we have that we, (laughs) that we can handle or disciple thousands, if not millions of people. And so you're absolutely right that the concept that we break down in, in brick by brick, you know, talking about people, pastors that have got onto a pedestal in such a way where they can operate in, in way that they're not really pastoring that, that job title almost doesn't feel like it fits in it. And it originates in the same place that we read in the Bible, where in the old Testament, the Israelites begged and begged and begged for a King, like the neighboring nations had, they wanted a physical representation of leadership, just like everyone else did. And God's sitting there. Hey, I'm, I'm already your King. I'm already here. I'm already guiding you. You know, they had what's called a theocracy, which is that God was instructing a leader to to carry out his will through the nation. And they didn't like that. They wanted to have a physical king. And eventually God conceded and said, fine, here you go. You're going to end up in captivity. You're going to end up, you know, with wicked kings, with good kings. It's going to be a mess because you refuse to allow me to be your king. And we think that, man, the Israelites, they went through it. They figured it out the hard way. And then we go to the New Testament and Jesus dies and they're trying to figure out how to go about life and and start the church and and everything that they're going through. And of course, what do the followers of Jesus start doing? They start arguing about whether or not they follow Apollo's teachings or Paul's teachings. And they start debating about which one is which. And Paul finally goes, guys, you don't get it. It's not about that. It's about we're following God. And you would, you would think that we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. You'd think that we'd read our Bibles and say, oh, we shouldn't do that. But what do we do now? Instead of following God the King, all of a sudden we're following, you know, the the next, you know, celebrity pastor up on the pedestal that has, you know, garnered this huge audience that released the newest book and, and has some kind of doctrine that doesn't really align with scripture, but it's coming from someone that wears skinny jeans and, you know, likes to yell from the pulpit and gets, you know, (laughs) millions of people. And all of a sudden that person's opinion matters more than what, you know, God says in his word. And we're more enamored with the cult of the personality. Like you said, we're, we're obsessed with the, the concept of a King. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. I, I, I have lost track Trevor, the number of times that I've said over the years, and I'm I'm approaching now 25 years as um, as a pastor, and um, my wife and I have been ministering in congregations, and and uh, I've I've simply lost track of the number of times I've told people, please, 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 never, ever put me on a pedestal, and there's a number of reasons for that. One is that you're the one that's going to be hurt when I don't meet your expectations. Right. And it's impossible for a, a man, any man as a pastor to successfully navigate as, as you said, all of the, all of the uh, minefields and, and traps and pits and, and everything um, to everyone's satisfaction that is simply not reasonable to to expect that and so when you set people up and put them on a pedestal you are setting you're actually setting yourself up to be hurt and right. the the evidence is is abundant out there in the ecclesias today so um and then of course the what some pastors i don't think they they intend to initially, but some pastors uh, over time will feed on that and they'll, they'll develop a sense of entitlement because everybody around them believes that they are or acts as if they are. And that creates a train wreck in the waiting. Right. And uh, we, we see that repeatedly. So so that's that's a that's a great point. The role of a shepherd, <laughs> the role of a pastor, um, is much different than um, what is portrayed in a in a good many 
ecclesias today. The role of a pastor, as you pointed out, is to shepherd, is to nurture, is to lead, um, is to bring correction when it's when it's needed. But at all times, the role of a pastor is to stay faithful to the one who has called him and serve the one who has enabled him and anointed him for that ministry and never lose sight of the fact that it is the Lord whom we serve and he has entrusted to our care, our spiritual oversight, uh, those sons and daughters of his. They are not ours. They are not ours to lord it over, but they are ours as a steward to care for as the Lord would have us care for. So I'm glad that you uh, started the the book that way because you need to 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 establish the plumb rind right from the beginning. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So um you talk about the prosperity gospel in, mm-hmm. in chapter two. Now talk about a minefield. <laughs> That's an area that um people have very strong feelings pro and con. Now you write about this and and so could you share with us what in in your view is the legacy of the prosperity gospel and uh what harm has come from that? Yeah, I think the prosperity gospel we're going to be seeing the ramifications of that doctrine, you know, echo throughout, you know, probably the next decade <laughs> century. I mean, it's going to be going for quite some time. I talk about how the prosperity gospel is really broken down in such a way that is is really harmful for people to believe because life is never guaranteed to us as going to be prosperous. I, I talk about how people quote Jeremiah 29, 11 all the time. And it's a great verse. It's encouraging. Uh, but in its context, Jeremiah is talking to a specific band of Israelites who are being exiled to Babylon and God is giving them hope saying, Hey, I have a plan for you to prosper. And we take that out of context and we read that as, Oh, God must have a plan for us to prosper. And that sounds really great until your child gets diagnosed with cancer, right? Mm -hmm. That, that, that promise sounds great until there's a sudden passing or your house burns down, or you lose your job. I mean, you just list anything that happens, right? We live in a broken and sinful world where I'm not trying to be a downer, but but bad things happen, and it's a guarantee in life. It's not a matter of if bad things are going to happen to you, it's when. And that's a product of living in a broken world. And so the danger to me in the prosperity gospel is that if we tell people that if you follow God, that nothing is nothing bad is going to happen to you and you are guaranteed to be prosperous and rich and <laughs> all the things that the Bible all you know does not say. But if we tell people that, then when they go through hardship, their response is going to be, man, God hates me. He's judging me. What did I do wrong? Why, you know, they, they, there can be a crisis of faith, you know? And so even the title of my book, I talk about, you know, deconstruction. And, and like you said, that's kind of how, everything is set up is that's a, that's a boogeyman word in evangelical circles right Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. where people are deconstructing. And, and what's hard is you shove everyone into one category and say, all deconstruction is bad. And you go, well, that's not exactly the case of what we're talking about here, right? Where deconstruction, if you deconstruct your faith, right, all the way down to the studs, that can be really dangerous for sure. We're in agreement there, Mm -hmm. but if you have a bad experience in the church or a, you know, a bad experience with believers and that's causing you to question, you know, how we do church in general, then that's a really healthy thing. And that's, and that's something that I encourage people, right? God's not afraid of us asking questions. He's not afraid of our doubts. He's not afraid of us saying, Hey, let's take a step back and evaluate what we're doing. And so when we're looking primarily at the prosperity gospel to answer your question, this doctrine of, man, if I follow Jesus, then nothing but prosperity will follow. It really warps our view of righteousness and of other people, right? So it warps our view of righteousness because in that doctrine, the more rich you are, then that means that you're 
righteous and that you deserve it. You're entitled to it because you've been doing these great things, right? And then you look on the flip side and go, well, hold on. If gaining wealth is an indication of righteousness, then that means I can take whatever means necessary to get that wealth. And the more wealth that I get, that indicates that I'm on a good path. So you see the problem with that is if you, if you make an agreement in your mind that you're willing to do whatever it takes to garner more wealth, who's going to be, you know, in trouble there, it's going to be other people, right? You're going to, you're going to, you're going to use people. You're going to trample over people to garner more and more and more wealth because in your mind, the more wealthy you are, the more righteous you are. And then on the flip side, then you also all of a sudden start thinking, well, if someone is poor, then that must mean that they're sinful, right? And that they're terrible and that they deserve it. So all of a sudden, this concept of, oh, God just wants us to be prosperous, which sounds really nice in theory. All of a sudden you realize the breakdown, which is it really is going to impact your view of people. It's going to impact your view of yourself and of God. And when that inevitably breaks down, because it will, you know, Jesus promises us that we're going to go through persecution, that we're going to go through hardship. Paul talks about how we're going to go through hardship, right? In James, it talks about, you know, trial. I mean, it's, it's littered throughout scripture and it talks about us loving people that are poor, that are destitute, that are oppressed. You know, the list goes on and on and on. There's no, in my opinion, there's no biblical, you know, precedent for the prosperity gospel to be true. In in what I believe is that if you follow that doctrine to its end, it's only going to be harmful to people. Yes, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I encourage people to um, to do their their study and their research on the the roots or the origin of the prosperity gospel, and you'll find out that it's it's not biblical. It's not drawn from from any any biblical doctrine or what it's drawn from. And in fact, I think it's, and I don't mean to upset anyone. That's not my intention, but I am going to speak the truth. It is drawn from the very strategies, methodologies of the enemy that seeks to get people distracted and on a path that is not leading to holiness and righteousness, as you pointed out, Trevor, but it's leading to self-gratification. Exactly. And it, and it will eventually, friends, following that false gospel, will shipwreck your faith eventually. And because I've seen it dozens of times over the years. It ultimately boils down to this. If God does not meet the expectations that you've created, and I said it that way intentionally, that you've created, then somehow it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. Or it's God's fault because he doesn't love you. And and both yeah. of those yeah. are simply wrong. Yeah. And <laughs> that's simply- devastating, Mike. And that's devastating to people. You want to you want to talk about what leads people to lose their faith. It's a myriad of reasons, but I'm with you. I've seen so many people leave the faith because of that exact reason. And it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Um, Yeah. So, so chapter three deals with consumerism. That was a very, very good chapter. Um, I'm old enough to, to remember when that arrived on the scene, uh, (laughs) when the seeker sensitive uh, model for churches became a thing and, and uh, and I can tell people, again, the origin of that, these things that, that come into the ecclesia, they all have a they all have a place of, of origin, a place where they were developed. And uh, friends, the seeker sensitive model, it doesn't have a biblical foundation or, or basis. Uh, it's man made. Um, but Trevor, I'll let you talk about how how you describe that in in your book. What's. Um, there's a lot that's been lost um, because of the seeker. In fact, uh, Bill Hybels, who's widely recognized as one of the mm-hmm. uh, founders of this, has has admitted in the last several years that um, shouldn't have done it that way. Um, 
But there's been things lost. Now there, there's been some things gained. I'll 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 say that there's been um, there's been some things that were positive in bringing people into the ecclesia and exposing them to to the gospel. People have gotten saved. There's no question about that. I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that, but uh, a whole lot's been lost as well, hasn't it? Yeah. Man, and this chapter gets me fired up. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I love, I love this chapter. I mean, yeah. obviously, I'm fired up about all of them, but yeah, but but consumerism in and of itself gets me fired up because of how much it's infiltrated us from our culture. Mike, you said that very mm-hmm. early on in this in this interview that our culture has found a way to seep its way into our pews, and I think that's a really accurate way to describe it. And this is one of the ways that I think it seeped in more than we thought it would. Uh, you know, so we've all of a sudden taken this gospel. When we read our Bible, it talks about Jesus telling us, man, go to the nations, right? Go to the people. Jesus is in the streets with the people. He didn't go post up in, uh, you know, a room somewhere and say, Hey, everyone, if you're interested, come to me, right? That's not, that's not what he did. He was, he was out with the people and we live in a society in America that, everything revolves around consumerism and capitalism. And that's not necessarily wrong when you're looking at it from a society, right? I would argue that the United mm-hmm. States is one of the greatest countries in human, you know, human existence. You know, we've, we're doing it better now, in my opinion, you know, than any other country ever before us. And for me, as a citizen of the United States, I'm proud of that. But as a citizen of heaven, I go, man, those are two very separate mindsets to me. And we've infused the two. And one of the ways that we've done that is that our concept of consumerism, which is where we are looking at everyone and everything as a means of feeding us. You know, when I was in ministry, I used to hear this thing from young adults I worked with all the time and they meant it harmlessly, but they'd say, man, I went to church on Sunday and I just didn't get a whole lot out of it. You know, I, it didn't really feed me was the line I heard all the time. Mm-hmm. And and I it bugged me for years and I couldn't figure out why it bothered me so much. And then when I was writing this chapter and doing a lot of the study in this area, I realized it's because it's this concept of consumerism where we have decided that the church needs to meet every preference that we have. And if it doesn't meet our preference, then we just leave and we go church shop or church hop until we find one that does mm-hmm. until we, until we're sitting in those pews and they do something we don't like. And then we move on. And I talk about mm-hmm. how most of church growth these days comes from side growth where people are leaving congregations to go to new ones. We're not talking about new converts here for the most part. We're talking about fellow believers leaving congregations because they don't meet some preference and then they move on. And so we show up to church. It's this Sunday centric where the church has spent the majority of the resources to put on the show of Sunday morning. And we have to do special offerings for benevolence and actual work in the community because we don't have enough left over because we've spent the majority of our resources on the building, on the show, on the laser, you know, on the fog machine, whatever, to make this, you know, secret sensitive model where we're trying to attract people into our churches. We've spent all this time and all this money to get people to come to us. And I'm sitting here going, the Bible says the exact opposite of what we're doing. And when you're talking about spiritual gifts and you're talking about edification of the body, that when we're talking about consumerism, it's really supposed to be the flip. We should be preparing every single day, reading the word, praying to the Lord, getting words of knowledge or prophecy or whatever, and sitting there going, Lord, prepare my heart today to bring something to a brother or sister in Christ on Sunday. Lord, I want to bring something to to church, right? I want to bring something to give to somebody, a word of encouragement, you know, a word of conviction. I want to, you know, I want to pray for a brother that I don't know if he's struggling or not, but you know what? I'm going to go up on Sunday and I'm going to, I'm going to ask him if he is. And if there's anything I can pray when we go into Sunday on mission, right? Where we go into Sunday saying, what can I bring? All of a sudden the focus is no longer on me and me and me, right? I'm not singing worship songs about I and how great the Lord is through me, right? It's it's saying, Lord, you are good. Lord, you are almighty and all-knowing and all-powerful, and you can do great works. And I just want to partner with you in that. Lord, help me to come to church on Sunday with something to bless the body 
And then when I leave on Sunday, it's knowing that I came as an active participant and not just a movie theater experience where I'm just coming, buying a ticket, grabbing a coffee, watching a service, saying hi to three people, and then going about my day. That's not what the church is. The church is not just a body of one, you know, one group of people on a Sunday morning meeting together. That's not church, right? Church is the ecclesia. It's all of us together as believers meeting together Saturday night, Sunday morning. It doesn't matter what day we're talking about, but we are meeting together as a body to edify each other, to build each other up. And we have gotten in this bad habit of expecting three or four or five people to use their spiritual gifts to put on a service for us, for our entertainment, for us to get something. And then for us to just leave and then come back the next week. And then we wonder why our pastors are exhausted and running on empty. It's because all they do is give and no one's coming to, to, you know, bring their spiritual gifts into the body. And so my hope and prayer is that, you know, we, we read this chapter, we get convicted. I get convicted, right? I'm, I'm, I do the same thing. I'm already thinking about, you know, the Seahawks game after church <laughs> and where I'm going for lunch, you know, instead of going, Lord, you have me here on Sunday morning for a purpose. And, and you have me here to look around the room and who's downtrodden, who's new, who needs encouragement, who needs to be built up. You know, I want to, I want to change my own mindset that, you know, this is not, Trevor's saying, all of you guys are terrible. It's saying, man, I need to work on this myself where I need to break from these consumeristic mentalities and break through that to go to church on mission because, man, people in our congregations are hurting and they need people like us that are on mission to go love and build up the church. Yes. Amen. Amen. Great, great points there, Trevor. Um, particularly the point that, that, um, as believers, not just as a pastor or a ministry leader at the church, but as believers, our day of, of congregating, gathering together uh, as the body of Christ approaches, we should be seeking the Lord. What can I bring to this gathering that, Lord, you can use to bless, encourage, equip somebody else instead of the mentality, the consumer mentality that we just show up receive and if we don't receive at the at the level that we think we should then that that kind of turns us off and the service wasn't worth our time and boy that is a that is a fleshly worldly attitude and not one that belongs in the ecclesia in fact as you were describing that trevor i was thinking uh tickling ears tickling ears yeah that that came to mind full force it's i think maybe we've just tried too hard, and I'm talking generally about the Ecclesia, we've tried too hard to accommodate people instead of just teaching and preaching the scriptures as they are for what they say and allow the Holy Spirit, that's his role, his ministry, allow the Holy Spirit to work things out in people's lives and not try to just put bumper guards all around so that nobody, you know, gets gets harmed by what God, you know, sometimes Trevor, God wants to rebuke people. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes he wants to, to uh, give a word of exhortation and a word of correction. But when we try to try to create the environment instead of, instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to invade our gatherings, well, I think we're short circuiting the work that God wants to do. Amen. Well, and, and to go on that, to piggyback on that, Mike, in that consumeristic mentality, we have the idol of comfort and the idol of convenience square on the throne. And for us, if we ever feel uncomfortable or inconvenienced, then our first, you know, mode is to just leave. And, and the Bible talks about it very clearly and we shouldn't be surprised, right? When we follow after Jesus, Mm -hmm. we are going to be inconvenienced. And it's going to be uncomfortable. We are not, we, we are human beings and human beings do not like to grow unless we're uncomfortable. It's just the way that it works. We would love to, to say otherwise, but the reality is, is we do not grow unless we're uncomfortable. And that's just the reality of it. And so you're at, you absolutely nailed that on the head. Yeah. Jesus, you know, Jesus, Jesus is all about full disclosure. He doesn't, he doesn't hide anything. And that's why, that's why he says in his word, if you're going to follow me, you better count the cost because <laughs> it is going to cost you. 
So, so chapter four, uh, Trevor, one nation under God. And here, um, here you talk about um, politics and some other things, but the, mm-hmm. the, the statement that jumped out was the American dream is not in the gospel. It surely yeah. is not, is it? No. And, and, and this is where, you know, these conversations, Mike, this is where things come to a head. There's a lot of folks that have read the first three chapters of my book and they're like, amen and amen and amen. Um, but man, I've just seen the church, especially in the last four to five years, where we have decided that our political affiliation is going to be more important to us than being a believer in Christ and following after him. And a part of that is we've convinced ourselves that the American, the American, you know, the American dream is in alignment with the gospel. And it's just not true. You know, following the American dream is not inherently bad. It's not sinful. It's not wrong. And and I'm definitely not saying that. But to say that the American dream and the gospel are the same thing is just heresy. It's just, it's just false. Right. So where we, where we do find some commonality, right. Is, you know, the American dream says that we want to pursue life hey, you know what? Jesus says the same thing. You know, we do want to live our lives to the fullest. We, you know, agree that people should. But then we start getting into stickier waters where we say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because liberty is not something that's guaranteed to us in the Bible. You know, when when Paul is writing his writings, most of the time it's in jail, the exact opposite of liberty, right? And, and it, you know, and we think about Oh, you know, the global church, there's believers in China right now that would love to exercise their faith freely. But if, the, you know, they they meet anywhere other than where they are currently, you know, there's devastating consequences of that. We, get, we hear stories out of the Middle East where people are being beheaded for their faith. You know, to me, that's real persecution. And I don't, I don't see that happening here in this country. You know, p- praise God. And I hope that continues to be the case. But the reality is that Liberty is not guaranteed to us through scripture. There's nowhere in there that says that, you know, Jesus, when he was, you know, ruling, you know, or when Jesus was ruling, when Jesus was, (laughs) when Jesus was alive, he was under a ruling that uh, was a terrible dictatorship, you know, and, and Paul in the same, and the early church was under Nero and Rome. I mean, we're talking about oppressive regimes that the church was birthed out of. But yet we've convinced ourselves that the only way someone can follow Christ is if they have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness when liberty was never guaranteed to us. Now, should we should we appreciate that? Absolutely. I'm thankful every day that I live in a country that I can exercise my faith freely and uh, without you know anybody telling me what Bible I can or can't read or where I can gather as a church or not. Right? I'm thankful for those things, but it's not a guarantee. And then you know the pursuit of happiness Again, this is another one of those ideas that sound really, really good in theory, but then in practicality, it's going to be problematic because it sounds great that you just say, hey, pursue whatever makes you happy. Okay, well, let's play that out. Well, let's say that what Trevor thinks is going to make Trevor happy, I'm going to go do that thing. Well, Mike is going to go do what Mike thinks is going to be happy, you know, give him happiness. But what if those two things coincide? What if they contradict? What if I can't be happy unless Mike isn't? Well, then whose happiness do, you know, who who gets to be happy and who doesn't? The reality is the Bible doesn't tell us that we are supposed to live a life of happiness. It says we're supposed to live a life of joy, right? And, and we're supposed to have this mentality, which joy is a choice. And so when we are joyful, that means that regardless of the situations we find ourselves in, no matter what circumstances are thrown our way, that we can find joy in those moments by following after the Lord. And so how that ties all the way back in is you go, you know, the the title of that chapter is a little provocative in nature. <laughs> and I noticed that you didn't. So it, 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 it's actually one nation in parentheses under God, question mark, yes. with, yeah, uh, with another right. parentheses, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's because the Bible is really clear that there's one chosen nation. There's one, and that's Israel. It's not America. It hasn't been America. It won't be America. God has one chosen nation that is Israel. Now, as Christians, we've been grafted in to those Jewish lines, right? We can have relationship with him. Talks about in Romans, right? That we have been grafted in to those vines so we can enjoy being his chosen people, right? Uh, We are his royal priesthood. You know, we don't need an intercessor because Jesus came and died for us on the cross. So in, 
in that understanding of it, yes, we are a royal chosen priesthood. But if we're talking about a nation that has been chosen, that is that is Israel from from front to back, right? That's it. Now, again, having a nation that follows after biblical principles, fantastic. Should we vote for people that are going to, um, you know, exhibit Christian, um, you know, morals and, and Christian policies that we believe uh, that really align with our faith? Absolutely. And so in this book, I, I don't say, you know, just throw all politics out the window. What I do say is, hey, be an active citizen for sure. You know, go out and campaign for your favorite uh, candidate. Go vote. Go convince your neighbor to vote. Be a citizen. That's that's fantastic. But when we start combining the two, where the the result is Christian nationalism, we can run into to trouble where we're we're ascribing Christianity to our country. And then when our country goes and does things like bombing, you know, countries or things that may not line up with the Christian faith, all of a sudden, when we've combined those two, then we start running into weird paradoxes where it's like, well, that doesn't really represent Christ. And then you realize that there, I mean, what is a Christian nation, right? What does that even mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, That a nation can't be a Christian, uh, an individual can, you know, but a nation in and of itself or a company in and of itself. It can be made up of Christians that are operating, right? There's some nuance in there, but mm-hmm. just understanding the the nuance of we are, you know, blessed to live in the country that we live in, and we are called to be responsible citizens. I vote in every election. I do my research. I read about candidates. I talk to my friends about it. I debate about policies, all of that, and all of that's good, but that is not the same as my responsibilities as a, as a Jesus follower and someone that, you know, follows after Christ. Amen. Amen. And I would, I would, uh, I would say to folks that pursuing happiness, the pursuit of happiness, we we understand that comes from our founding fathers and and the documents of our founding. Um, But pursuing happiness disconnected from what God tells us through his word will result in happiness Mm -hmm has brought us where we're at today as a nation. Mm-hmm. And and the scriptures says it this way. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. Completely disconnected from our loving father who has already told us this will bring blessing to you if you will pursue these things. So that is a that's a, a very good point, it's very dangerous to pursue happiness disconnected from what God has to say. In fact, the word tells us, I'm reminded that the love of Christ constrains us. So that means that, that, that loving Christ and his love upon us, when we're seeking to love him, honor him and show respect through obedience, that, that our pursuit of certain things, it's going to be very, very directed. Um, It'll keep us on the right path. And, and the other thought from that chapter uh, Trevor, when you're talking about liberty, again, from our founding document, and I'm all about liberty. I, sure. I, I want liberty. Me I want too. Liberty for everybody. <laughs> but listen, yes, me too. True liberty. True liberty, Trevor. It's only found in Christ. Yeah, amen. Because that liberty is not based on or affected by our circumstances. Amen. That was the point you were making about Paul being in jail. Right, writing all these epistles. I mean, case in point, right there. Political alignment, um, chapter five. Uh, and you kind of already answered this. Yeah, Christians absolutely should be standing on. And and folks, we have simply got to get past the attempt by the American media mm-hmm. to convince us that. Uh, certain issues are not moral issues. They're not Christian issues. They're not biblical issues. They're, they're, this is for the government to handle. Um, and I'll give you a prime example. Uh, marriage. How in the world do we allow the government to dictate to the ecclesia what marriage is and who is allowed to participate in this holy covenant that the God of the Bible created in the first place. 
Yeah. And, and Mike, I honestly, we might actually get to a point here and this is where we're, it's going to be perfectly fine for us to disagree and have a conversation, yep. right? Where this is actually where I break down the difference between being a citizen of America and a citizen of heaven mm-hmm. in the sense that um, there are a lot of benefits that come from being married in the United States, right? So you get different tax exemptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get uh, different benefits that come from that when you apply for a home, having a joint income, right? There's a lot of different things that benefit us from the, you know, from being in a marriage. And though, you know, we may think about it in one way where we are um, in a position where, um, you know, marriage in and of itself is very much a, a Christian institution that God created. And it's definitely something that we as believers, uh, you know, appreciate love that God orchestrated, put it together. So we agree in that concept for sure. Right. But then where you start to break down is, well, are there advantages that people in society get or don't get based on being a part of those things as well? And this is where it really does break down of, are we a Christian nation? And, and the answer to that is, is no. Now, were there founding fathers that were Christians? Yes, but the, the majority of them were actually Freemasons. The majority of the people that signed the Declaration of Independence were Freemasons. They weren't Christians. Now, are there a ton of Christian principles in the Declaration of Independence? Absolutely. Um, you know, is it in our Bill of Rights and all? Absolutely. But when we're looking at the rights of people, and this is where things get a little sticky, where we have more nuanced conversations of, um, do I believe that? Marriage is meant to be between a man and a woman in a biblical sense. Yes, I do. But from a society standpoint, am I opposed to people getting the same tax advantages or benefits or things that I get from being a married man? I don't, I'm not opposed to those things, but how the government goes about doing that, obviously to your point, you know, may not be the most tactful, but that is, you know, that is a a larger conversation. And that's what I, I'm trying to draw out in these chapters is not necessarily, Hey, this is the one way to do these things. It's, you know, there might be a a larger conversation here. Let's talk about the different components and see, you know, where we land when we bring all those things up. I'm sorry if that, if that rocks the boat a little bit, but that is, that is, those are the kinds of conversations that I really hope come out of reading brick by brick is not, again, is not me saying this is Trevor's opinion about how everything should be run. It's here's some topics, some issues that maybe we need to talk about and then we can bring those things to the surface, talk about those, resolve them, and then we can, you know, move forward together as a, as a body. Yes. Yes. Amen. Conversation uh, has never hurt anyone. In fact, conversation can be very enlightening. Um, and I have, I have uh, no issue with, with anyone receiving uh, benefits, um, but, We'll agree to disagree on some of yeah. that and yeah. just move on. So, so chapter six uh, deals with race. Now, boy, you talk about <laughs> but an issue mm-hmm. in the church today, Trevor. That is it. Um, you talk about confronting the issues that come with racial division in the church. Uh, we may as well accept the fact that it's very, very probable it's going to be messy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and the, the basis for this chapter, Mike, has come from deep relationships with people of color and people that are in a different demographic than me. I'm obviously a middle class white male. And so my experience growing up, my parents are, are both together. I grew up in a very loving home. My experience growing up is very different than those of people that are in my life. And that chapter really revolves around listening, which I believe is a lost art, where we've lost the ability to listen to one another. And I think the the the, the conversation around race has gotten so – people get enraged having this conversation. It's been inflamed. And the problem with that is there are real people that are really hurting – and that have been hurt and no one's really wanting to talk about solutions. Everyone's pointing fingers at whose fault it is and, and, and why it's happening and everything like that. And this chapter really works, you know, through the idea of if we can just let our defenses down, stop being defensive for five seconds and just listen to what our brothers and sisters in Christ are saying. And there are, there are brothers and sisters in Christ that are saying, 
I have gone into a church circumstance. I have been hurt in a way that I have been discriminated against because of my race. Here is how it happened. This I'm, I've been hurt in this way. And for some reason, even just hearing that gets people defensive and upset. And I don't, I personally don't understand that. If I have anybody in my life that said, Trevor, what you did hurt me or what I, what I said hurt me, my immediate response is, I'm so sorry. How do I rectify that? How do I restore that? And so this chapter is really breaking down in what ways, um, you know, is the church struggling with this concept of race? And I don't want to be the guy that just points out all the problems. And so I actually do a, in this chapter specifically, I break down solutions, you know, because I believe that there's a lot of pastors out there. There's a lot of church staffs out there that say, Hey, we agree with you that this is a problem, but we don't know how to, we don't know how to go about fixing this. We don't know how to about, you know, how to bring solutions in this area. And so in that chapter, I discuss, um, you know, three different solutions that I think are a good starting place for a lot of churches to evaluate where they're at in this topic. And, and really try to handle this conversation in a way that can bring about healing uh, to people that have been hurt, especially in this area. Yes. Yes. Amen. Amen. Well, Trevor, we we are, believe it or not, we are within minutes of already. <laughs> <laughs> it goes quick. It goes quick. It really does. I, I'd, I'd like to just touch on one chapter. And because I'm, um, I don't like to, uh, oh, Betty. Go ahead. Betty raised her hand. Go ahead. Really quick. You know, I need to take Trevor with me. I want to go talk to my pastor. It's all about love, 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 love. And uh, your prosperity gospel. I don't even know where to start because you have so much great information. It's crazy. But anyway, I do want to talk to him. But we were also talking about social justice or gospel too. Social mm. gospel, you know, and it's all about love, love, love. And how the churches have put homosexual and pedophiles and everything else above on the pedestal instead you know, of God, Almighty God. So right. I, you are hitting, you're hitting it on the nose there, and might have to get your book, read it, and then give it to my pastor. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Well, and that's and that's honestly, Betty. Thank you so much for for contributing. I really appreciate that. It really is something that, you know, if it, it's like anything, when we take an issue, if we take it too far where we make the entire gospel about social issues, then obviously we're missing the point of the gospel. And and I'm with you in that. And I think what's really challenging to the church right now is that we have social issues. There are these things that have come up that are real issues that are impacting real people. And we hear about people taking it too far. And so we just throw it all out. And I just think that we're missing so many opportunities for restoration and reconciliation uh, in the body because we aren't even willing to have those conversations. And so, and so Betty, yeah, I, I agree. Sometimes that can be taken too far and, and that creates different issues for sure. Well, my pastor said that when he says something, one or two people walk out. I said, wouldn't you rather have one or two people walk out and maybe change your life than the 200 that you've lost? Mm. You yeah. know? We've lost a lot of people because of that. Yeah. Well, and and I on. Oh, I'm sorry, Betty. Yeah. You know, leaving the church during his sermon. You know. Right. Right. And that's and honestly, I pray before any time I do any of these interviews, and I appreciated Mike prayed right before we got started here. I really appreciated that. Um, that we are as believers called to speak truth. But we're also called to speak truth in love. And that dynamic is so challenging. I, you know, this morning when I was spending time with the Lord, that was the first thing on my mind is, Lord, how do I communicate truth in a loving way, um, but still not taking away anything from the truth? And I think that's something that we're going to battle to the end of time. And I'm sure your pastor, you know, wrestles with those things as well. And I definitely do recommend reading, uh, you know, brick by brick and, and working through those concepts. And you may not agree with everything that's in there, and that's perfectly fine. I'm not intimidated by that at all. I actually anticipate, I joke with my friends that there's zero chance you read through the entire thing and there's not one thing that might not upset you. Um, and, and I'm okay with that. We got to get back to being okay with just having conversations, disagreeing with one another, still loving each other, but still willing to you know, engage with these really hard topics. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Betty. Thank you. Trevor, we are out of time. Friends, the book is Brick by Brick, Reconstructing the Deconstructed. I think from this conversation, uh, you've learned that there's a lot of good information. I would encourage you to go to trevorwhitman.com, 
get a copy of the book. And as Betty suggested, read it yourself first and then pass it on to your pastor. Amen. Trevor, thank you for joining me today, friend. Yeah, thank you for your time, Mike. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Go Mariners. Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we got this week, friends, on WCN-TV. We will see you next time. Please share this show with your friends. God bless you. 